Hello and welcome to the Criterion Quest, a continuing podcast series looking at important films and contemporary classics. I like adding a little I know. added contemporary, <laughs> <laughs> an extra syllable. Uh, my name is Chris and I'm joined as always by my wonderful co-host Lee. Hello. How you doing? Good, how are you? Very good, very good. Uh, we're back to normal here in Melbourne, more or less. Like, yes. So... We are actually together, we watched a film together, and we're recording together again. Yes, and uh, you've been to lots of movies, I hear. Yeah, I figured out today I've been to the cinema every second day this week, and it's been fucking amazing. Catching up on lost time. Yeah, pretty much. Well, because MIF got cancelled, it's it's like all, and you know, cinemas here in Melbourne have been closed for like four months. It's like, you know, playing catch up on everything, so... I got to see The Last Duel, the new Ridley Scott film. Oh, yeah. With the Affleck and Damon and Adam Driver one. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, that was surprisingly good. Um, once it kind of hits into its conceit of like how the film's structured and what it's doing, it's like, okay, I'm on for this ride. Uh, Jodie Comer, um, Killing Eve Lady, she's yep. fucking awesome in it. Nice. As she always is. Um, I saw Lamb, which was like, eh. Mm-hmm. I expected a little bit more from that. Like, not expected, it's like I hoped for... It's like, yeah. okay, yeah, cool, man versus nature, I get it, it's fine. It's not quite as fun, like, you know, you hear, you hear um, Icelandic, dark, folk horror thing, where it's like a farm couple that a sheep gives birth to, it's a lamb's head on a human body, and they adopt it as their child, like, you expect there to be some really fucking weird gnarliness going on, it's like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> but uh Nit Ram, holy shit, that movie blew my socks off this week. Yeah, I'm excited for that. I really recommend it. And it's one it, it's cuz I know it's coming on Stan like the streaming service here in like a couple of weeks. Mm. Um, cuz I think they helped kind of co-finance it and things, but it's one I would almost recommend I'd really recommend seeing in the cinema mainly cuz yeah. it's a very slow contemplative film like I mean, let's be honest, like a lot of Australian yeah. <laughs> like true crime dramas are. Yeah. Um, but it's the sound design is really impeccable in it, and I think like seeing that in a cinema setting with, you know, where you're just kind of switching everything off and devoting to that your attention to that, because yeah. it's, it's a fucking, yeah. It's one where I'm really interested, like when that goes wider or starts to head out, what non-Australians will think of the film. Yeah. Because we they like don't have the prior knowledge exactly. Like they don't go into like the, it, people over a certain age here in Australia. Like when you sit down to watch that film, you'd know what it's all in serv- not in service of, but what it's all leading towards. Yeah. Um, and so like not having that prior knowledge, like knowing like you know, oh, oh shit, it's going to this extent, yes. like or it's going to this mean. end game. Like it'd be really interesting to see. Yeah, definitely. I, I agree, because to be honest, it's not something I knew a lot about, even yeah. being like the age I am and well, all that. We were having this conversation like the other week, actually, where, like where we all were when, you know, the Port Arthur massacre happened. Because I went to Port Arthur this year, and I'm like, oh. This, okay. isn't, this is not what I expected it to be. Yeah, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't know about the massacre. Wait, wait what? Not yes, at all. Not at all. Dude, you were 10. We were 10 when it happened. I know, but I... How did this escape? It was like the big... What? It was like, I mean... Not, um, I was going to say it was like our 9-11, but it's, mm. it, no, no, no. <laughs> you know, it, I like mean. The biggest it, thing for our country. Yeah, it was, it was a, a massive historical event, tragic event that kind of reshaped the structure of our 
history in and our I country. I remember the gun laws going out, and I remember there was a massacre, but I just, I didn't remember Port Arthur, I suppose. I didn't connect the dots. But I think it's because in Australia we don't celebrate our serial killers a lot like other places in the world, maybe. Yeah, well, that's what's so kind of great about the film being called Nitram and stuff. Like, you know, it is, like, he, yeah. It, it's interesting how they kind of treat it in the film, and it's one where, like, as soon as I was done, I, I went and I watched the press conference that they did at the Cannes Film Festival to kind of mm. hear them, like, the writer, the director, and um, Caleb Landry-Jones, who's fucking incredible in the film, like, kind of talk about it and talk, like, his Justin Kurzel, who directed the film, lives in Tasmania. Like, he's mm. just like, it's like, yeah. One- didn't it get a bit of... Like uh, trouble getting made because the families of the victims don't want him to be made into a, like a hero. Yeah, or, uh, that's uh, that's the thing. It, I mean, it was a, a very hero, it was but... a very tough film to get made, and like the writer at the Cannes conference talked about, it took him like ten years to actually finally put pen to paper on it. Like they've been working on it for that long because it's like, how the fuck do you tell this story without without? Yeah, and it's. Interestingly enough, like what kind of prompted him um, to write it finally was he was living in L.A. at the time and there was a shooting at his local grocery store. And then like a week or two later, another mass shooting. And he's just like, OK, that's the kind of through line is just like, well, if we focus this on how the how and why of something like this, how something like this could happen as opposed to looking like, you know, yeah, it, I know what you mean. Yeah. And it's really interesting. It's interesting what it, how it goes about what it's doing. It it doesn't try and make you sympathise with him. It yeah. makes you un- try and understand how something like this could happen. I think that's that's where it would get away with it in a way. You'd yeah. have to do that. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I. It's really. I was ama- like, I went in being like, hey, I'm really looking forward to this. Um, like you know, checking this film out. But it's it's shot to one of my top of the year. Really. Ooh, nice. I really really dug it. But um. Speaking of films that we may or may not have dug, <laughs> let's uh, dive into this week's film, uh, Crazed Fruit, the uh, Ko Nakahira film from 1956. Two brothers compete for the amorous favours of a young woman during a seaside summer of gambling, boating, and drinking in this seminal Sun Tribe film from director Ko Nakahira. Adapted from the controversial no- novel by Shintaro Ishihara, and critically savaged for its lurid portrayal of post-war sexual revolution among Japan's youth and privilege, Crazed Fruit is an anarchic outcry against tradition and the older generation. Hmm. Interesting. That, it, it, it's wild that the synopsis kind of gives you more, more. more context than necessarily the, the film. I mean, and, and again, one of those ones where we've literally just watched the film and we're yes. recording, so... Yes. Um, but I think also, like, us, and we say this all the time, us sitting here in 2021, uh, analysing a film from 1956 Japan. Yeah. I think there's probably... We're not the intended audience, and maybe the intended audience would probably understand a little bit more than we would. Yeah, and it's also, again, like this, it's saying how it was, you know, culturally savage, critically savage for its portrayal and blah, 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 and how it's impactful as an anarchic outcry. I'm just reading this all again. Mm. Uh, That is of the time, and Mm. this is also now contextualizing it for 2021 audience. It's it's one where you're like, oh, yes, I can understand how that would be the case at the time. But yep. watching this now, it's sort of, 
it's not necessarily what you focus on because no. it's something so we're so used to by this point. Yes. It's like when you say, for instance, like you're reading like Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger. It's like, oh my God, they wanted to ban this book in the 50s because it says fuck. Mm. Like, but you're like, eh. It's lost its shock value. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it, it's that whole thing about the disillusionment of youth and, you know, that malaise. And it's just like, fucking how many films, like, that's that's its whole, uh, that's a whole genre now. Yes. <laughs> a whole subculture. Yes. That is, like, just wash, rinse, repeat. Mm. Some good, some bad. So, yeah. we've seen this a bajillion times. Yes. But, all that being said, super interesting to see it from a different culture. Yes, I agree. And I think the big takeaway for me was the Western influence at this time in Japan. We were talking a lot about that, watching it um, from the way people dress to um, the music they listen to Mm. or the music in the film as well. And, um, yeah, and I think he said in that little synopsis, uh, post-war youth. Um, and we spoke a lot about uh, them dealing with who they are at this point in time, you know, and they're trying to separate from the old ways. Um, yeah. And then we were trying to think, it's not that Western culture was pushed on Japan after World War II. Western culture had been developing for a while there. And I remember when I went to Japan... And the name fails me, but there's we went to this shrine and there's a um, old influencer, old emperor influencer that um, brought Western culture to Japan. And um, Kyoto used to be the capital of Japan, but then he moved it to Tokyo. And t- Kyoto and t- Tokyo is the letters rearranged to mm. Kyoto, so it's like old and new. Okay. So, and that was. I mean, the year fails me, but it was long before World War II. So they'd had westernisation for a long time in terms of he would always wear suits. And yeah. He would encourage, um, you know, modern technology and all that sort of thing. So, mm. yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting because, I mean, we've seen in some of the collection before and like some other filmmakers kind of really delving into that kind of the old versus the new. Like, I mean, Ozu is the big one that comes to mind where it's like a lot of his films are about the older generation dealing with, not dealing with, but like, you know, coming to terms with and the examination of the difference from the older generation and the new generation. So that's definitely something that's being looked at and examined within Japanese cinema and really like as well, like literature as well, like this being based off of a, a book at the time. That's sort of the, the term Sun Tribe. Um, it basically came, it was actually a term that originated just in kind of culture and then kind of got adopted by art and turned, like you know in literature and books to kind of create this subgenre. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I hadn't heard of that um Sun Tribe before. It's the first time I've heard of it. There it is. Sorry. May Meiji Emperor. May the reign of Meiji Emperor. Is oh okay. What, do you have the dates or anything or So it's, again, something I learnt while I was in Japan, but it says 1868 is okay. when he sort of started bringing it in. Yeah, so, well, that's, I suppose, around the time of the Industrial Revolution and things happening, so obviously it's... Mm. I mean, from a, from a civilization standpoint, you can understand, like, hey, we're looking at, you know, places in Europe and the US and stuff, like, that are, you know, making these leaps and bounds in terms of industrialization. so let's... Mm 
if we follow suit, that, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's interesting to see, like, this, this post-war aspect of it, where it is, like, in particular, focusing on this kind of almost, like, I don't want to use this term, like, lost generation, but it's this, this generation without purpose, mm. I guess. And it's, you know, something that also existed in Western culture as well. It's like, well, you know, we were the kids that were too young to go off to war, but then... Now it's like, well, what what do we do? Yes. What what is our place? What is our thing? What is mm. what is our cultural or you know historically important thing that happens in our lifetime? We don't know, and we're just yeah. kind of almost a- like a bit angsty about that and unsure of what to do and where to go with life. Yeah. Um, and this is 1956. We're coming up to the 60s, where there would be a lot of uh, you know people fighting for things that they believed in. Yeah, that's where you have the cultural revolution happening in particular in the US and things. It's that idea of, you know, even like steering away from those old ideals and into like this new world of, you know, liberation. Like, you know, because um, that's something that's very cl- not clear in this film of like women having agency and... Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. I struggled with that a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, so just quickly, I've got the, the great essay from on the Criterion from the Criterion website up here. Just like wanted to briefly do a little bit of a Sun Tribe thing. So it refers to the post uh, post war generation. Um, it was coined to describe the rich, bored, and vicious characters uh, populating the pages of books and art and you know film. Uh, these characters embodied all that Japan's post war disillusioned youth desired, and that Jap- uh, Japan's new conservative government feared. Absent parents, an excess of money, leisure, and sex. Absent parents, we spoke about that. Mm. I think we see him at one point. Yeah, and they are just like, where's your brother? Oh, I don't know. Oh, he's hanging off with his rough friends. You probably shouldn't hang out with them. They're rapscallions. Yeah, and then he's like, well, you gave birth to him. (laughs) Yeah, which is like a snappy, like, man, like... Yeah, don't put Ru- this on me. Yeah, it's a rough response. I'm surprised. Like, and the father just finds it hilarious. Where you would kind of more expect the father to be like, "Boy, don't be so insolent." Yeah, it's interesting because I don't know. I just always feel like Japan have very. They come from. They are very strict and and demure and lots of different things. And it's yeah, it was weird for me to watch this film. It's the first time I've sort of seen yeah absent. Mm. Absent parents. It really does. It gave me a lot of feels of something like Rebel Without a Cause, where it's like this younger generation, which is kind of around the same time as well. Um, this younger generation being like, well, we're actually going to portray in film like what kids are actually really like. Mm. It's not, you know, this cookie cutter great image. It is ones where they sit around drinking and smoking and just a lot of the time bored in this film. Yes. Going around picking fights and finding, I think that's like what ends up happening with the like the insta- like the inciting incidents of this film. It's it's out of boredom more than anything else. Like one like guy puts some shit in the fish tank because he's yeah. bored. Well, that's later it. they refer to the fish all dying. I'm like, yeah, oh. but I mean the fish is like a very thinly veiled metaphor about like you know it's. I think later on in the film, he's just like, you know, fish and women, they come and go and they die. But then it's like, you know, the idea of like later we see this at the beginning, we see this gorgeous fish tank that's being treated to by this one girl. And then the girls left and then the fish die. And it's like very clearly pointing the fact of like these, not necessarily men, but like these characters that we're seeing, like they are so lackadaisical and like unmotivated that they 
can't even be like you know the fish die. Yeah, and it's just like that's like ah oh, come and, and their attitude about it is like ah oh, come and go, mm-hmm. whatever. <laughs> yeah, very whatever. Mm. But it, it's an interesting one how it starts. Like let's let's go, let's go through this movie. Mm. So you've got your two brothers. Yes, Haruji and Natsushi. That, that, let's call him Nat. Yeah. <laughs> Nat and, Nat and Haru, we'll Nat say. and Haru, because we are ignorant white people. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> and they're off on their way um, to uh, the beach to go beaching. Yeah, they, they, they've got their um, their little motorboat down there, and they've got all their friends down there, and it's they don't necessarily live there, but it's, hey, we, we come and go as we please. Yeah. And, you know, so life it's, of leisure. Yeah, so it's automatically setting up. Like we were like, how old are these guys? Are they school kids? Are they? I get the sense that they've just like just finished school or something. Yeah, and I feel like Harry. They don't ever say it, but he feels like he's like a, a late teens kind of guy. Yeah, because he has the thing of he goes to I think Yokohama to have like a class reunion so it gives me the sense of maybe his first year out of school or something yes that's right yeah Yeah. and he's sort of you know and you can definitely see that with nat uh, the older brother sort of having he's he's more well established with his group of friends and the way that they behave and how they go about their summers and haru seems to almost be kind of a tag-along aspect yes and like you know, they all welcome him in and things, but it's also like, you're well, you're different. Dif- you're different from us. You're- and they often say, "Can I get you a cold drink? Do you want a soda?" Yeah, they're, yeah. they're super condescending about yeah. it all. Um, but then at the train station, Harry drops his hat, and a lovely, beautiful young lady picks it up for him, who will become our main female character, yeah. Eri. Mm-hmm. Is that how we say her name? Yeah. Ari? Yeah, and he is smitten. But previous to that, he ke- he was. Um, Giving his brother a bit of shit about always having girls all the time. Yeah, well, that, like it's it's a little bit on the nose the setup of the two of them on the train traveling down, and his brother's just like, well, "Women, man, that's what it's all about." And he's just like, "Fucking grow up, dude. Yeah, <laughs> I'm younger than you, but also grow up. You're pretty sexist." Oh, I've got to say, some of the- <laughs> he's like, "I'm I'm here to have fun. I'm not here just to get laid." Like yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah, some of the male characters in this film, particularly Nat, the brother. Well. Jesus Christ. What do you mean, what do you mean some? <laughs> <laughs> I would say most of them. <laughs> like, look at Frank, Frank, who's just, like, gets slapped a lot in this film yeah. because of the way he treats women. But Yeah. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it's such a simple, it's around this time as well. So we spend, you know, it's about, we're 20 minutes in, I'd say, 20 minutes, 30 minutes in. And it's just the two brothers hanging out with their friends where are we going? Going to having drinks, having dinner, playing strip poker between With a group each of each other. Yeah, it's weird. Oh my god, that it's was what, so funny. And then like going to a carnival, picking a fight. It's just a lot of. It, it's around this time where it's like, oh, okay, the f- cinematic influences of this are starting to get interesting. In that, it it is in particular that one scene where they're discussing work, like basically almost giving a thesis statement on Sun Tribe, essentially, like the idea of the disillusioned youth um, when they're at Frank's house. And it's like, this is like we're watching a Truffaut film. Mm. It goes heavy into the French New Wave where it's like, we're just going to... Like, this sounds so derivative of, like, uh, you know, nothing happens. (laughs) But, like, it is just presenting, like, a realistic... Like this, yes. yeah. It's just playing shit out and just 
deep in a conversation and then almost in a meta way yes. of having the characters openly discuss the, the themes. themes. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, it was interesting. I think it's interesting though, because at no point, oh, that's a lie. But I was going to say at no point was I bored. <laughs> <laughs> We'll get into, we won't get into the bit that I was bored with. That's much, much later in the film. But I was like, I was intrigued. I was like, okay, where are we going? Um, what, what's this about? And yes, we're hanging out and all that sort of thing and nothing's much is happening. But it's, you know, um, I would say like there seems to be a lot of films that we're watching where you're just presented with a, a place and time. Yeah. And it's, there's nothing... Uh, driving the scene or anything it's just you are absorbing the surroundings yeah and say um once upon a time in hollywood is probably an example of that where Mm -hmm. here you are plop you into this little space and time yeah but i would argue that with once upon a time in hollywood it it, that film quickly establishes who our characters are what their relationships are and what their motivations are whereas something like this i think takes a little bit too like, long to get there. Like, I mean, it establishes the relationship between our characters. I mean, like, you know, I was saying before about the train scene, how it sets up, you know, the two brothers. But it's also, like, cool, but what, what, what where, why? Why? Yeah. yeah. Um, Whereas, like, with Hollywood, you're just like, oh, you, like, you know, Rick Dalton, you you yes. know where he's going. This is his last one shot. Like, you know, if he fucks this up, he's doing... You know, spaghetti western. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> I don't want to go and make a goddamn Italian western. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, but I don't know. I guess I was kind of enjoying uh, piecing together the... I suppose I got a little off track with what was happening and more into... Wow, look at all the uh, Western influence, like we mentioned before. Yeah. Their fashion, um, the Hawaiian music, the... Um, the Hawaiian shirts. The Hawaiian shirts. Even um, Frank, the friend. Uh, yeah, who is very clearly a... Either half Japanese or... Yeah. I wasn't even sure. Yeah, and there's even at one point in the film, uh, a waiter mistakes him for a Western person. And, and speaking to him in English. Yeah. And I think a lot of this is done on purpose. Oh, yeah. And, um, and I was really intrigued by that stuff, mm. if that makes sense. I'm like, wow, this is an interesting moment in time and I think a lot of the Japanese cinema we've watched at least for Criterion Quest has been very for lack of a better word Japanese yeah and very focused on a singular narrative point to yes. some degree either narrative or character driven point yes whereas this one in particular for the first say half hour 45 minutes you're like is this just like that's why it evokes that French new wave it's like oh this isn't is this going to be about nothing? Like, if, and that's again sounds like a negative thing. I, I don't mean it as that. But is this just examining a theme yes. and a time and a place? Is this like a mood piece? Yes. As opposed to like a narrative story, and you know, very per- like you said, purposely having in moments like Frank with the bartender and stuff, them going to that uh, the fair by the seaside, and all the signs are written in English. English. Yeah. yeah. And like you said, the, the Hawaiian shirts, the music. Um, interestingly, like, so the uh, brass section and the Hawaiian guitar stuff for the music um, was inspired hugely for uh, From Here to Eternity. Um, old 
classic American Hollywood films, a rape romance one. You know the famous one of like the couple making out on the beach and like the wave comes up on oh, them and stuff? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's inspired by that, which is like the seaside romance idealized version of mm. West, like that. And so it's like, well, let's evoke that, mm. but also like, yeah, that, that's what's interesting about it. The examination of Western influence on the Japanese culture. Definitely. And, and I think that's why I was enjoying it. Yeah, first part of the film, even though you're right, it was very long getting to the point. Yeah, I was like, wow, look at you know, this is interesting. I wonder if this is a choice by the director, mm-hmm. or if it really was like that back then, very Americanized or Westernized or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, well, I'd imagine, like, I mean, obviously, I haven't read the novel, but I'd guess that it's a lot of like the novel. I think, de- like, given that Sun Tribe was something that came specifically from this writer's work in particular, ah. like a couple of his novels. Um, examining that quite a bit. So I'd imagine that obviously has a a lot of it in there, but also the filmic influences, I think. Like, it's a specific choice to use brass and guitar music in a film like this. And Yeah. Yeah, but I'm sure the stuff like the Hawaiian shirts and everything was in the book, book. I'm guessing. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so Haru is young, innocent, Nat, older brother... Womanizing pig. <laughs> and airy... No, you know, I'll just say young man. Okay. <laughs> like, just just stereotypical It's not like he's kid. on the outer. Like, he's, all his friends are like that. It's not, yeah. like, it's not like he's weird, the brother. They're boys on a footy trip. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. And then we meet Aerie. Aerie, he And the older brother refers to Aerie as a kid like Haru. So he's, she's perfect for you because she's so young. Mm. Which we find out later is... She's 20? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't really know. But anyway, Haru and Eri form a relationship. Uh, she likes him because he doesn't try anything because he's so innocent. Innocence has brought it up a lot. Yeah. Which is like basically, I mean, fuck it, we'll just get into it. We later discover that Eri is actually married. Yep. And to an American. To a, yep, to an American. Who at one point is like, honey, I'm home, like yeah. in an over the top. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, again, I suppose even further dealing in that Western influence on Japanese. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But it's uh, basically the like her justification for why she is having this affair is because she got married at such a young age. And so she's like, real, she's essentially having her youth now. She's like, I, I did things in the wrong order, she yes. says. And. It, it's kind. It's like okay, qu- kind of questionable. But then her justification for why she likes Haru is really sweet. It, it's like you're saying the, the innocence idea, the yes. fact that you know she takes him to the dunes and all they do is make out because he's too kind of scared to do anything yeah. else, and he's this young sweet. And it's she's like, oh shit, this is the courting process, the relationship process. That I never had as a teenager, yeah. and I'm getting it now, and it's and it's, she's not well. We don't really see how she's treated by her American husband, but the way she's treated by Nat, and I'm assuming it's meant to be like how probably women were treated a lot at that time as well. It's so the opposite, and you do what I say, and it doesn't matter if you say no, we're doing that, you know. Yeah. It, and it, she would love that about Haru because. Well. You know, she's not being bloody jumped on. Well, is that like, <laughs> well, is that like also another, a nice little statement that the film is making, where it's like we're at this crossroads in time and culture, and so you have Nat representing the old style of how men treated women and went about their, you know, 
their extracurricular activities. <laughs> no, and then you have Haru, this this new this idea of this new sensitive man who is sweet and innocent and will, you know, doesn't force sex with a woman. Yes, I know. <laughs> like, yeah. But I don't know, like, I think, I don't know, I don't, do you know, and I think because we've just watched, I haven't had my t- head, time to wrap my head around it, but I think Eri is kind of, she doesn't have a lot of agency, and this is what we were talking about, and I think the main thing we got down to was motivation. Yeah. What is her motivation? Because... What ends up happening is that brother says, finds out that she has a husband and he said, I won't tell Haru if you sleep with me. And then uh, continues to sleep with her, sort of like bribing her in a way, like not bribing, what's the word? Um, Yeah, like not blackmailing. Blackmailing, thank you. Blackmailing her. Um, And so you would think that Aerie's just doing it to keep her uh, relationship going with Haru. But we see little moments... Uh, sprinkled throughout the film where it appears that she enjoys her relationship with the brother, Nat. Yeah. Um, Like little kisses on the finger, little kisses on his nipple. (laughs) (laughs) On those big, big chocolate nips. (laughs) I can't say nipple without giggling like a little small girl. (laughs) Um, But so that's where, like, agency, yes, but motivation, like what's her endgame? What's her point? And I think her confusion and not knowing what she wants or where... Like, because there's a point in the film where she then catches up with Haru and he's trying to kiss her and she won't kiss him. So mm. she's not really sure what she wants and she's confused. And and uh, I don't know if it's just that the, the film thinks that women are just mindless, like, can be influenced and, and you know push to whatever a man wants or mm. if it's something deeper than that and that it's she's sort of representing maybe the youth who are disillusioned and and unsure of which direction to go kind of yeah. thing yeah um, and that or the american husband represent the the influence of western culture coming into um, yeah you've I got like, know, like it, does she represent essentially everything that the film is trying to do and say where it's like you obviously have the the Western, like the Western influence with the old, with the older husband, you've got the kind of, and then you you have her engaging in both sides of the youth, essentially yes. the, you know, the the Sun Tribe, like the lackadaisical, like you know, the fuck society, like you know, disgr- like disgruntled kind of lost youth uh, in that, and then the kind of more, well, yeah, that's life. You move on and you find purpose and you go with it, Haru, like. Yes. So it's basically she's stuck in the middle, yes. I guess, as our conduit for the, as the audience, possibly. And it's basically yes. the push and she's being tugged at both ends. Yes. Which way you go. Yes. Like. And I think that was interesting because I don't think she really loved the brother because whenever Haru would turn up, she would more so go that yeah. way. Like she was more wanting him. But she was influenced or... I don't know what the word is, but... Uh, seduced, seduced by? Seduced by Nat. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, with the scenes with her and Nat, you can tell she is into it into a certain degree. She's not doing it just because it's... Like, yeah. 
I don't know if I'm explaining myself properly, but it was it was interesting. It wasn't black and white. It was a yeah. Bit she gray. she wouldn't keep meeting up with him if because we do have scenes where she actually instigates the meet up and things with him, as opposed to there are a lot of scenes where he just shows up at her house yes. or like forces her onto the boat at the end. Like you know, yes. there are obviously those scenes. And on the boat, she's kissing his chest and she's cuddling up to him. Yeah, and all that sort of thing, and that's. That's what I'm trying to get at. It, it's the one thing, like we, which is the kind of frustrating thing for me with this film, and I think why we were kind of like what uh, with this character, yeah. because it it goes out of its way to greatly explain her motivations for why she's having an affair with Haru, hmm. and it to such an extent that you were like, oh, whether or not you agree with it, it's like I get it, I understand you yes. as a character and why you're going about these actions. Yes. We don't get that with Nat. Like, there, there is no... Even a scene with a conversation... Like, it, it would have made sense to even have a conversation of Nat being like, why are you doing this to my brother? Like, again, which is would work in with the character thing of he's not the instigator or the bad person. He's putting it all on her. Yeah. But, which works in line with his character. But then it would give us that outlet of understanding why from her perspective, I guess. And I think I got really... And that's what I was saying. Is it this deep meta thing? Yeah. Or is the director of the film, whatever, saying that she's just a mindless... Yeah, women don't have agency and they're just... Yeah. Because it could be one or the other and I can't really pinpoint which one it is. I want to give it the benefit of the doubt of it's not that, but I think it is just that, you know... Yeah. Filmmaking, yeah. like I don't know, like yeah. And I think because it's it's filmed so long ago mm. that it it honestly could be that women are mindless things without agency. It really could be that. Yeah, like we've understood, like, <laughs> or it's also the thing of like we don't need to understand her motivations because she's not our protagonist. Yes, she. But like, despite the fact of her being the catalyst and the thing yes. that drives our narrative, yes. our focus is on the two brothers. Yes. So we. And I think if it didn't have all that Western stuff. Throughout, it would very clearly be um, the mindless, no agency thing. But because it had all that other stuff sprinkled through mm. before we even got to the relationship, I'm like, this is interesting. I think it's deeper than that. Yeah, mm. I, I think it. Yeah, it, it, it's a super fascinating one. I, it is. I'm gonna say I quite enjoyed it. Yeah, it, it's one. Definitely one. I think us sitting down and chatting about it like makes you kind of appreciate it more. But. Like, there are moments where you're just like, where are we going? Yes. Like, you, you've, you've, you've shifted away from it being this kind of mood thematic piece from the first half into a more narrative-driven it, story in the second, but come on now. Yeah, like where you get back in. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Yes, I definitely agree. Um, yeah. It's probably not one I'll watch again, but in terms of a lot of the criterion we've watched over the time I've been doing it, um, it's definitely something... It's not the worst. It's not the worst. It's not the worst. But I know what you mean. Like, once the storyline kicked in, that that, that was what we were doing. We were following that. Yeah. Um, And it it, it took a long time to get there. What I find interesting about it as well is, I don't know about you, but the film almost goes out of its way to make me not like anyone but Haru. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, and I... But to be honest, Haru, I don't... I don't necessarily like... I, I sympathise with him yeah. because of the situation he's in unknowingly. But it's, like, Nat is such a dick. To the point of, like, you have the he's, scene with Frank where Frank's just like, well, 
he's just like, I gotta, you know, I love her, blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, who's more important, this girl or your brother? And he's just like, I don't know now. My brother is my enemy. And you're just like, man, you're fucked. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's really gnarly. But is it a comment on something? That's what I'm wondering. And I'm still, like, I still can't get over the, the, the absence of the parents as well, the total lack of that. And is that is that why he's kind of lashing out and being so kind of, it's black and white. Yeah. Because he's not having that nuanced guidance of parents around yeah. or something, or this older influence. There are no adults, really, in this film. Yeah. Which is interesting. Because like, the disillusioned youth, it, it's not just about their place and their time and their what they're doing with themselves and their purpose. It's their relationships as well. Like yeah. The way they talk to each other, all of them talk to each other. They're not really invested or caring or whatever. No. Like at one point, uh, Nat throws glass at Frank just because Frank asked him like a question and yeah. he didn't like it um, and he, he says oh, his brothers throw a lot of glass yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, they're not very deep with each other they don't there's no loyalty there's no it's 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 not just on the out it's on the in as well these they're they're lost souls in a way yeah that's a good way to put it lost souls yeah I've got to say though I do love slash hate Frank's dancing. Do you remember? Oh, I fucking loved it. Oh, and we've got to say some sweet snake jazz in this film. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's like when it heats up in the third act of like essentially the boat chase. It's just it's just hi hat rhythming. It's fucking great. Snake jazz nailed it. I think um, this film likes to spend a lot of time. You know when films like to show, look at these cool cats. Yeah. You know, look at how cool we are. We yeah. are so bad. Look at me um, dancing. Think about, like, I, I want to say um, Tokyo Drifter and Branded to Kill, but it's uh, the Senjun Suzuki film that we did, uh, Youth of the Beast, Yes, where it's like the hitman with the cheek implants, oh. and how fucking... And they go to those clubs where it's like the glass, about, like dance yes. floor, but, and you're just like, this is just fucking cool. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Whereas this film, it's definitely not cool. It would have been cool back in the day. Like, if you think about... Mm. You've seen probably a lot more Japanese films than I have, but back in the day, young people would have flocked to this film in Japan and be like, look at these fucking cool motherfuckers. Well, um, the actor playing Nat, uh, Yujiro Ishihara... Needs braces? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Not just braces, but he needs to get that dead tooth removed as well. Imagine how bad his breath (laughs) was. Enough about horrible dentistry. Um, he is actually the brother of the author of the book. Ooh. And he was a bit of a fucking rock star. Ah. In this, especially, I think, because of this film. He was kind of, for a little while there, considered like the Japanese James Dean or Marlon Brando. Like this... This kind of exemplifying this new idea of this youth kind of coming through, and you know, th- this a, rep- a kind of beacon for this generation at this time. And it's like, look at this cool motherfucker right here. Yeah, and I think that's lost on us. Yes, the film definitely loves to tell you that this guy's fucking cool, but we're sitting here going, look at this fucking pig. Look, look at this guy who thinks he's, he's fucking cool. cool. Yeah, and I think that's where this you... guy has a high opinion of himself, yeah. not necessarily. He yeah. does have a. Like, they mention his smooth uh, singing voice, so I can see that at that time, the way he carries himself and all those things that you said, a bit of a yeah. fucking rock star with his cool singing voice, and all and, that. and also the fact that his brother is also like the literary voice of a generation and things and he's then in the 
filmic or like personification of that, like uh. of the ideals that his brother's writing about, then you have him portraying it in films, and yeah. it's just like, look at this James Dean right here. Yes. With his fucked up grill. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Yes, I yeah. think um, again we lose that a bit in our modern ways that we think about things. Yeah, exactly. It's again one of those we hate to say it, but time and place. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's talk about the ending. Hmm. Let's talk about that ending. Now, I was saying that I wasn't bored. I think the ending got me a bit. It just not just the very end, but that that the. the uh, Haru takes wants to take Eri on a three day. They oh, they're going on this lovely camping trip. Camping trip. Yeah. Uh, he still doesn't know that Eri is married. Da 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 da. But then Eri sends a letter saying, "Oh, can we go a day early? And I can only go for two days." Obviously, her American husband's coming home, but Haru doesn't get the letter. Nat does, and he decides to go. Uh, I'm going to show up and take her instead. Yeah, and. Horribly forces her into the boat. In the, the best moment of the film where he's just dropping all of her shit off of the dock into the boat, <laughs> including a six-pack of beer that you just hear smash <laughs> everywhere in the best. Like, I wanted to hear, like, that pot plant break noise for it almost. <laughs> like, yes. Yeah. And then... <laughs> yes, then um, Haru finds out whatever, goes after them. And then we have... Long moment of him trying to find them, them on the boat, him trying to find them. Oh, I've fallen asleep. Oh, I'm oh, it's the next day, and, yeah. yeah. And now I'm going to circle them for six minutes. Yeah. And then, yeah, he finds them, and he decides to circle around them and around them and around them for fucking ever. I mean, I get, like, what the film is doing with that, where building it's basically... Tension? Sorry? Building tension? It's building tension, but it's also... Him circling, like, I mean, you look at it in different ways of, like, you know, it's... You could view it as him, like, you know, some uh, predator circling prey, which, you know, he ends up killing the two of them. But it, it, but it's also circling. It's him trying to figure out his intent, yes. what he's doing. Yes. And he doesn't know what what he's doing or where he's going, so he's trapped in this endless circle just going round and round and round until he decides to take action. And it's probably not the best action to take <laughs> because dude's going to jail. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. That, and that's what I've like I've been trying to unpack. It's like what is it what what what's the film saying with that yes. final m- moment? I just love you and I were like, yeah. He, yeah, and when the boat like <laughs> jumps over the fucking little sailboat and smashes it, it was great. Yeah, we had a good cheer. Yeah. <laughs> also, because fuck Nat and kind of fuck Harry. Yeah. Harry annoyed me in that scene because we just had her snuggling up with Nat, giving him kisses and whatever. And then she sees Haru, and it's like... like oh, my God, he was out looking for me all night. Oh, my God. Yeah. And you're like, fuck you. Yeah. You can't have your cake and eat it, too. Eat it, too. And she's like... It, it appears to me like she's trying to be the damsel in distress. Yeah. She doesn't actually call out help, 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 or whatever. But, I don't know, I kind of got that vibe, and... I was like, kind of good when he not not. <laughs> Murder's never great, but yeah. Film. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's not real. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> she didn't actually die. Yeah, but I know what you mean. Like, is it saying what is it saying? Like in terms of like, because the whole film, like jumping back to the first half, where it's the this examination of like society and or like you know this this lost youth, this sun tribe, is this 
you know, is this showing that Haru is definitively taking that, like, you know... He's is lost he, his innocence. Has he, yeah, he's lost his innocence, but then also at the same time, is he killing indifference? And is he killing them? that kind of vibe? Or is he, like, what, what's he... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm a little bit... I, I don't know. Yes. And this is the, the lovely thing of recording straight after viewing as well. <laughs> you haven't had the time to actually yeah. fucking digest. But maybe people who are listening, they might like to make comment and yeah. tell us if we missed something. Or... Like, because this is a well-regarded film. Like, uh, I, just having a brief look around, there's a lot of kind of essays and things dissecting it. But it is... The bulk of that is the examination of the Sun Tribe kind of movement yes. as opposed to how this exemplifies it necessarily or yeah. what it what how this film I feel like it would be a really good book. Yeah, it'd be in, like it's one where the whole time like knowing that it was based on a book I'm like this book would rule. Yeah, like it would. it's basically a seaside summer and these are the rivalry of these two brothers. It would be fucking great. Yeah. And did something maybe just get lost in translation? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I don't really know what it is. Yeah. But anyway, doesn't mean I didn't enjoy it. Yeah. It was definitely, yeah, it's, it's, it has its lulls, but overall it's a very, it has a lot of very interesting things that it's, it's putting forth to you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I think the big takeaway for you and I was definitely the, um, the interesting time it was set and the influence of culture. Yeah. And less so the rivalry of two brothers and a married woman. Yes. Yeah. But I've got to say, the sexual tension was great. Oh, man. I, I have I, the IMDb for it up uh, at the moment, and someone has uh, added it to a list of a uh, sexy watch list. <laughs> <laughs> really? This is on their sexy watch list. and I'm, This is on their sexy watch list? Apparently. I mean, yeah, <laughs> but like... If you were in the 50s. Yeah, you never know. But it, it's it's sexy in the same way as, say, Wong Kar Wai's in the mood for love is sexy. It, it's the chasteness of it. Yes. It's, it's, the, it's, the, the it's the knowing glance. It's the occasional accidental touches that make you be like, that scene where they're fucking lying on the rocks yes. sunning together. Yeah, that shit's sexy. <laughs> I'm going to say, okay, this is very off topic, but me and my best friend last night watched five hours of Pride and Prejudice. The chase is all you get. At the end, all you get is one little peck. Yeah. And it's all those looks and glances and little touches. Yeah, and that's, oh. that's the money shot oh. right there. Yeah. You, can't, you can't hear this right now, but I'm fanning myself. <laughs> She's got the vapors. <laughs> I, yeah. I reckon that's way sexier. Yeah. yeah. I, I was listening to a podcast uh, yesterday where someone brought up the questions like, what is... What is like the sexiest movie or something? And it's like just on the spot. Like I was like, fuck, I'm, like what is? Yeah, like because it's things. Great fruit. <laughs> but it's like you've got stuff like you know stock answers of like you know wild things. Basically, like these films yeah. that are like explicitly overt, overt in their sexuality. Yeah. But I'm like, no, fuck it. Honestly, something like in the mood for love is. Fucking yeah, there's something there. Like where it's that chaste kind of yeah, yeah, and in I mean. Like, if you're listening to the Criterion Quest, you've seen In the Mood for Love. It's one of the best films of ever. <laughs> so you know it. It, it. The fact that nothing happens yeah. in that film as well is like, uh, yeah. like, yeah, it's it's great. There, I think the film did really well with this. Like, there's that little moment where the, the feet brush past yeah, each other. Yeah, she's got a little, pink, a little pink, pinky. Yeah, little <laughs> foot pinky. Yep. What's that foot toe called? Uh, foot pinky? That little piggy. Oh. <laughs> Whichever little piggy it was. <laughs> Um, yeah, and you're like, oh. <laughs> and then it's like, it cuts to a, cl- like, it's, I mean, the intention is, it's the close-up of his fist kind of clenching, and like, mm. and he's like, mm, but it's also, 
dick shot. Yes. <laughs> like his, him in his little speedo. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, yeah. It's, it's, I, it's good. It's for sure. Se- like, it's it's got some sexy in there, but in a very <laughs> tasty kind of, like, you know, different way. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad we talked about the dick shot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, like, there's, 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 I would say, quite overt things as well for 56. Like, yeah, he oh, yeah. Like, her skirt off in the Yeah, bed. yeah. And the fact that she's lying there wearing nothing but a towel in the morning and stuff, like. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's full on. I think for us, it's still quite. You know. Yeah, you get why it was controversial at the time. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's it's something that you don't often see. I guess oh, so many young people would have been like leaving this film, going, "Jesus, Jesus, I need to have a cold shower." Yeah, you know what? We need to go to a French discotheque and dance like idiots. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, have you got anything else for this one? Um, the only I did have a couple of things about the tilted cameras. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, in the scene at Frank's where they're discussing the like yeah. the, the, that French New Wave. We're going to overtly discuss the theme. Scene. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I just thought there was some interesting filming things where um, Haru is shot straight. Yeah, but Nat and some of his friends are always there's angles to them yeah so they're all shot on dutch angles as, yeah which i guess is the film saying saying like hey he's not Straight. actually part of this Great. sun tribe he's something different mm. yeah and there was some weird freaking cuts man like <laughs> in the middle of a sentence cramp. yeah just <laughs> hard fade to black all of a sudden and they're having some fun with some wipes Oh yeah, well. it's not quite Star Wars wipes, but we're getting there. We're getting there. It's interesting. <laughs> it's more like this is some early Kurosawa wipes. There, <laughs> so. um, but yeah, um, that's. I guess that's what we thought of the film. I think it's probably about that time where we hear what uh, somebody else thinks this film might be about. jaunty little jingle means it is once again time for Claire's... What's this movie about? You've nailed it. After like, what, 30 times? You've got it down pat. I'm genius. I love you. (laughs) All right. So this week's film is a Japanese film. Yeah. From 1956 entitled Crazed Fruit. Okay. And that is the Criterion cover for you. Ooh, sexy. Ooh. What is Crazed Fruit about? Okay. Well, I was almost going to just do, like, the story of, um... What's the one with the peach again? Oh, Call Me By Your Name. Yeah, I was almost <laughs> going to say Japanese, Call Me By Your Name. Well, that works. Because it's got fruit. No, um, so 1950s Japan. Hmm. With sexy... Sexy-looking people, young people... Okay, 1950s. Same age as my dad. That's not information <laughs> that's useful. I'm so stuck. Let me see. Japan. There's young people. I don't want to do the boarding school story like I normally do. I'll let you know it's based off of a classic, uh, a, a infamous novel of the time. Ooh. That was published, uh, I think, a year or two before the film came out. Okay, thank you. All right, so this lady, I don't, I'm not going to name her, but she's gonna, just going to be called Lady. She is in a love triangle with the two guys behind her in the picture. Mm-hmm. So one of them is the one that her parents want her to marry, and the other one is the one that's like the bad boy, the 
dangerous boy, has a motorbike, that kind of thing, takes her out, you know, like Japanese motorbikes. Mm -hmm. It's a thing. Yeah. And um, takes her out into, like, the country and, like, shows her all these kind of, like, adventures. And she's, like, torn, making those choices between... Playing it safe or going with the bad boy. Playing safe or going with the bad boy. And the safe option is actually a really good option because he's a doctor as well. He's a doctor. So she really has no choices. But in the end, she does because she runs away with the bad boy. And lives happily ever after. Oh uh, man, when you said like that the good the good guy the good boy is the a doctor, I was so waiting for you to be like, and the bad boy, he's a fruiterer. <laughs> I forgot about the term fruit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so then then I, I we, we haven't recorded it yet. I don't know what she said. <laughs> <laughs> Ho- hopefully she was close. I doubt it though. Yeah. Um but do you have a tagline? Okay. I had two. I'll give you both. Crazed fruit, love triangles and beaches. And my second one was, which I like better, which I think I'll go with this one. Crazed fruit, don't shit where you eat. (laughs) I like that one. Yeah, I like that one better. We'll go with that one. Um, I just went with, uh, (laughs) from twisted roots grows crazed fruit. Something like uh, kind of keeping it with that tree fruit vibe. I think we should just have Chris comes up with taglines every week. No, I feel good at it. No, no. Well, I'm fucking. I got put to shame by one of our patrons, actually. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Patron uh, Keelan came up with the fucking like Mount Everest, like kind of gold standard for our, uh, the Browning version, actually. <laughs> Sorry, S- that title. Yeah, I know. Again, <laughs> uh, yeah, he submitted the tagline of the story of a man who got lost in translation. Holy shit! Like, everyone on Patreon agreed, like, it's like, ours were fine, but god damn, dude, well done. Nice. That was incredible. Yeah. And if you don't, you might not be able to pick it up on the microphone, but just as that tagline was read, a huge crack of thunder (laughs) just hit. So we're we're now in a thunderstorm, but that's how good that tagline was. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, I got a tiny little bit of trivia that didn't come up that I'll quickly dive into. Uh, Francois Truffaut was so taken with the film that he recommended it to the Cinematheque, and this was the first Japanese film awarded that honour. Um, Cinematheque was like a film society. Can I just say Cinematheque is like you should start a club and call it Cinematheque. And it could be like a techno, but then you play movies on the wall. Like techno versions of soundtrack? Yeah. Oh, like an actual club. Okay, the Cinematheque. (laughs) That could be fun. (laughs) I'm not doing that. (laughs) Uh, This is a piece of trivia specifically for Lee. Uh, In the dance hall scene, Frank and his partner are mimicking the dance from the 1955 movie Picnic. Oh. Yeah, well, I don't know what that is. But you you enjoy those dance moves. I I something. I don't know what Picnic is. Let me see what this is. They were awful dance moves. Oh, this is a... Ooh... It is a 1955 film starring William Holden and Kim Novak. And it won two Oscars. Ooh. There you go. There you go. Platinum blonde Kim Novak. Why not? 
Um, but yeah, with that, we'll move on to the actual Criterion edition itself. Um, it is currently unavailable on DVD, but it is available on the, to watch on the Criterion channel. And it comes with an audio commentary by renowned Japanese film scholar Donald Ritchie, as well as the theatrical trailer and the usual booklet and essay that Criterion usually do. Woo! Yeah, so that is <laughs> Crazed Fruit. Yes. That is spine number 295 down. Uh, so let's let's see what our next episode is going to be. Please don't be a five-part series. No, no, no. We, we, don't have a, we don't have a double feature until like two, three more episodes time coming up. But our next one is a Lucino Visconti film. Sounds delicious. I, I like Visconti films. Uh, 57 Italian called Le Notti Blanche. I don't know. Never seen. Let's Yay. find out. Let's find out. Uh, but as always, uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, if you want to send us an email, uh, we'd love to hear what you thought of the film or if you have any tagline suggestions for yourself. Um, of yourself, I should... I don't, I don't know. I don't know what I was trying to say. If you've got any taglines that you've for come up with film. for this film, <laughs> you can send us an email at thecriterionquest at gmail.com or you can follow us on Instagram at thecriterionquest. I'm also on Twitter at criterionquest, all that usual shit. Uh, as well, shameless plug for the Patreon. It's all there in the episode description. If you feel like supporting the show, hearing some extra fun content, head over there. Yes, we've got what, what's next that we're putting out? Uh, well, we've just put out our audio commentary for Death Becomes Her for Halloween. Yay! And we're getting ready to record our commentary for The Shinning. The Shinning! <laughs> we're going to talk some Kubrick and uh, Jack Nicholson. It's yes. going to be great. I'm fucking excited. Um, so, yeah, head over to patreon.com slash thecriterionquest to uh, have a look at that stuff. Otherwise, we'll be back in a fortnight's time with La Notte Blanche. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for this week's episode, I'm Chris. I'm Lee. We'll see you next time.